Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he asks a rhetorical question. He says, If I was wrestling with beasts at Ephesus, merely based on human hope, what would have been the point? The apostle is recalling an experience he had, likely referring back to Acts chapter 19, where Paul was in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus visiting and preaching the gospel, and suddenly he got caught up in a city riot. And the city of Ephesus had been stirred up into chaos and a big argument about these Christians who are coming into the city and causing problems. You see, the problem was raised by Demetrius. And his problem was that they were disrupting his economy. Demetrius was a crafter of idols. He was a silversmith who made his money based on how many idols and shrines he could sell. And when the Christians came to town, led by the Apostle Paul, and started preaching to give up your idols, they won't get you anywhere, and giving them the hope of an eternal God, the living God, who rescues them from every trial, well, Demetrius wasn't too happy. So he got together the other tradesmen and stirred up the city into a mob where they started dragging the Christians out into the amphitheater and putting them on trial. Paul is reflecting back on that experience of wrestling with beasts at Ephesus. He uses the imagery of Daniel. Now, perhaps there was a literal trial in which Paul was threatened with the stadium filled with beasts, lions, tigers, and wild animals where the gladiators fought, and he would be torn to shreds. Or perhaps he was speaking more figuratively, uh, using that image to speak of the mob and the beasts who were trying to tear him limb from limb. In either case, we see how Paul, no matter where he went, was always being pursued. As soon as he arrives at one place or leaves to go to the next, somebody is after him. As soon as he leaves Ephesus and is safely on his way, it's not long after that he arrives in Greece, and the Jews are plotting against him again. So not only were the pagan idol worshipers threatened because their trade was being taken away, but also his own Jewish countrymen and brethren were threatened by this preaching of freedom through the grace of Jesus Christ. Why was Paul getting attacked? Why was he constantly threatened everywhere he went? It is in the nature of our mission as Christians to be threatened, to be pursued, to be under the ire and focus of an enemy who wants to rid us. If he can't silence us, to get rid of us altogether. 
So no matter where we go, if we as Christians are doing what the Lord Jesus is asking us to do, are going to grab the attention of evil schemes, world powers that want to coerce you into laying aside what you believe and pledging your allegiance to their king. It was just such a scheme that was laid down for Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. As we move on in the story of Daniel, we see one king is taken down, another king is raised up, but the same problems keep repeating themselves. The new king is King Darius. He's representing the Medes, which have aligned themselves with the Persians and at that time were the world power. They overthrew the Babylonians and remember on Sunday that King Belshazzar had been killed and defeated by the Persians and the Medes. Now King Darius is on the throne in Babylon. On that throne, he decides to organize his kingdom the way that the Persians organized their government. The Persians were known for their organization. And that when they became an empire, they reorganized themselves into what they called satraps. These were sort of regions that were ruled by satraps, which is another word for protectors. These protectors watched over their certain little province, and Darius had appointed 120 of them to oversee Babylon and its surrounding lands. These 120 protectors, it says, were also overseen. They weren't the highest in the land, and there were three high officials that would oversee all of those governors. Three high officials, one of which was chosen Daniel. Daniel was chosen among all of these people who had been trained and served under the previous king, and he's chosen, in fact, the king wants to appoint him to the highest of the three so that he would be second in command to King Darius. Well, as the other comrades and fellow Persian emperors or uh, governors are watching this unfold, they're starting to get a little bit upset. After all, he's not even native to this land. He's not Persian. He's not Babylonian. He's Jewish. He came here as a slave, as an exile. What right would he have to be appointed above them with their experience, with their loyalty to the empire? So two of the rulers and these protectors begin a plot. They're plotting how they will be able to take down Daniel. They begin to start a political ad campaign. You know how these go the political ads that uh, people spend millions of dollars researching, this opposition research to try to find the very worst dirt you can find on your other candidate. And as they try to dig up whatever they can on Daniel, they can't find anything. They can't find him in violation of Babylonian law. They can't find a smear on his record where he neglected his duties or made a mistake, and they can't question his character. 
They're a bit speechless to know what to do. And so, like a good Twitter troll, they just start making stuff up. They start changing the narrative. They set up a false set of circumstances, presuppositions, so that by the time they get to the argument, they know they've already won because they've set up the rules. And the rules they set up, the king goes along with. The idea is that the king will make a declaration that for 30 days, no one is to pray to any other god except for the king. This seems like a good idea to the king because it will prove that he's taking care of business. It will prove his control. It will prove his allegiance and the loyalty of the men who are serving under him. So he agrees. He signs the document, and it is declared that no one can bow down or petition any god or man for 30 days except for the king. You see, the world cannot abide your objections. The world is driven by jealousy and fear. And it just cannot stand that you're not willing to play along. As soon as you show you're not willing to play along with their plans for how they're going to prove that the king is number one and that the power he has is, is the highest power in heaven and on earth, if you don't go along with that, then you're not one of them. And you start to attract attention. And the point at which they're driving is, is that one point in your life where you will be challenged in your allegiance to God. Because they, they've tried everything they can with Daniel. They've tried to dig up scum. They've tried to make up things. Remember how they did this to Jesus? They brought forth false witnesses, and the false witnesses would come forward, and one would say one thing, and the other would come up and say something the opposite. They'd contradict each other. So no matter what they did, they could never find something on Jesus. He was, he was too righteous. So they went after the one thing that was actually true. Something he said about the temple. They said, didn't this man say that he would tear down the temple and in three days raise it back up? Well, of course, Jesus didn't say exactly that. In fact, he's only quoted one of their places having said something like that. And he said, you will destroy the temple and I will restore it. So they go after that point of contention that is in every one of us with our allegiance to God and the worship of God, the temple, the temple of our hearts. They script the trap. They start setting up all the circumstances, and the devil knows how to set up those circumstances so he can get after where he thinks you're going to be weakest. Now this has become real for Daniel. It's no longer theoretical. It's not us talking tonight from our comfortable pews in our warm building. What would I do if the government came to me and decided 
they were going to ask me not to pray. We can go over these questions, but can any of us even say with certainty what we would do? Well, what will Daniel do? It says that as soon as he heard that the document had been signed and sent out, that said, you will not pray to any other god except the king, Daniel went to his room and he prayed. Now, this wasn't Daniel trying to lead a revolution or incite rebellion. This wasn't Daniel leading a public protest and activism that would get the attention of crowds that maybe he could sway to his side or other Jews that might be willing to take up arms. He doesn't do any of that. No, he just quietly goes to his room. But he also doesn't hide. He doesn't hide the fact that he is going to oppose this rule and law. He does it with his windows open. He doesn't lock the door. He doesn't shut the curtains. He does it with his window open, and he does exactly what he did every day. Three times a day was Daniel's routine. Morning, lunch, and evening, he would go to his room, kneel down, and pray facing Jerusalem. So he does just that, and of course, his adversaries know exactly what he's going to do. They know he's going to go to his room like he always does. So it doesn't say this, but it's implied they're, you know, standing outside the window, waiting until they can hear him. Yep, now we got him. We've got witnesses. We know he's violating the law, and so they, they go and tattle on him. Later on, it's called malicious accusations, the kind that don't come from anything good other than to tear down. Now, of course, when Jesus was accused that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, what was he really talking about? He wasn't talking about the temple that was built with their hands. He was talking about his own body. He was talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit that God was dwelling in his body, and that was what they were going to tear down and destroy. So, like Daniel's adversaries, the adversaries of Jesus were fear-driven, driven by the jealousy of idolatry, and they did destroy the temple by crucifying him and placing him in a tomb. And in that tomb, his body was laid, broken and battered, and they sealed up a stone, a great big stone so that no one could move it, and they sealed it with Caesar's own approval. So Daniel, likewise, is cast into his own tomb. It's interesting that throughout the story here, King Darius keeps trying to root for Daniel. From the time at the beginning where he wanted to appoint Daniel to the highest position to the end. King Darius keeps rooting for Daniel, but the king has his hands tied. You see, the king has enslaved himself to his own foolish power. Because as soon as he made that declaration, he he couldn't go back on his word. So the king was forced to throw Daniel in the lion's den, even though he himself didn't even want to. 
Because this is the foolishness of idolatry. It, it binds us to lies that we've created. And it has to be completely gotten rid of in order for us to be free. We have to be free of the power that the world is trying to teach us to submit to. And as they cast him into that lion's den, they set a stone over the entrance. And it even says they seal the stone with the king's signet ring so that they would know come daybreak that nobody had broken the seal, nobody had gotten in there well. It was night to free Daniel and he would be left to the fate of the lions all night long. Well, the king is so distraught by this events and what will become of Daniel that he spends the whole night not able to sleep. It says he's fasting, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. It even almost implies that he's praying that Daniel will somehow survive. He calls Daniel the servant of the living God. Uh, a term that you would not expect a pagan king to use, the living God. When he comes back to the tomb at the break of day, it says that with haste he comes at dawn. He has them open the tomb and he shouts in there, Daniel, are you in there? Has your God saved you? And sure enough, not a scratch on him. Not a bone broken, not a wound cut open. No harm was found in him because, it says, he had trusted in his God. And so the king, amazed and in wonder, turns then to the accusers. And when he sees the victory of Daniel's God, he turns to the accusers and says, now you go in. And he has all of Daniel's accusers thrown in the lion's den. And it says that before they even hit the bottom, the lions had already grabbed them, torn them apart, broken their bones. So it wasn't for lack of hunger that these lions left Daniel alone. It was because God shut their mouths. The king sets forth a decree that basically reverses all the stuff he said before and sends it out into all his royal dominion that the people are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. When it gets to this climax of the story, it puts it in poetry form so that the narrative breaks from storytelling to song. It's like the moment in a musical where you're going along, there's a lot of give and take until finally one of the characters, then you know something big is coming, he breaks into his big song. He is the living God. Why would this be so significant to conclude the story with the king calling our God the living God? Remember that Paul asked the question, why did I fight with those beasts at Ephesus? He said, if it was merely on human power and based on human hope, 
What would have been the point of it all? In other words, why would have I gone to this city in the first place? Why would have I preached this message that was only going to threaten to get me in trouble and all of my friends? Why wouldn't have I just learned to get along, to have our little religion over here and they have their little religion over there and not seem to need to upset the system? Why would have I risked my own health to threaten their economy and their money and their income? He said, if it's only based on human thinking, on a temporal vision, a short-term idea that humans have about power and victory, he said it would have been pointless. But this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is teaching us the truth of the resurrection. And the whole point of what Paul is saying is that the reason he was willing to do that, the reason he was willing to risk life and limb at Ephesus, the reason Daniel was willing to risk life and limb, the reason that Jesus was willing to risk life and limb was because of the truth of the resurrection. It was the truth of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, then that changes everything. It changes the whole mentality of our world about what matters. It changes our whole mentality about Christmas and what matters. If all there is to Christmas is making sure we've got our list checked off, we've got everything under the tree, we've got the house ready for visitors, we pull off a some kind of impressive guest gathering and party everyone is wowed by. If we look nice in the picture, if we've got our family together, whatever it is, the resurrection changes all of that. So that it's not about how much money we spent on the other person or how much money they spent on me. It's about a willingness to risk everything, to, to throw it all away, for us to be willing to throw all the presents away, to burn the tree down, to have the government march into our church on Christmas Eve and tell the kids that they have to be quiet or they're all going to jail. Some of you would say, oh, it's a good thing I didn't memorize my parts. We'd be willing to take on all of that because the resurrection is true. When Daniel goes to his room, he says he prays and gives thanks. He, in fact, rejoices and gives thanks that he should be tested so greatly. He calls on God for help. Because when the world tells you to shut your mouth, God says, speak up. When they tell you don't pray, go and pray. When they tell you you can't, well, you can. You serve the living God, the God who will not be bound by lions and who will not be bound by death and who will not be bound by any limitation or threat that inside you're afraid of. 
Instead, Daniel returns on the other side of it all, and he's more prosperous from before. And this is not signifying that every Christian who faces trial will end up better off for it. Hebrews showed us that a lot of them didn't end up earthly, in an earthly way, better off. But it does say that you will gain something greater. And that is the hope of the resurrection of the kingdom, which is coming. The return of Jesus, where he will set all things right. He will stop the mouths of all beasts that are trying to fight against him. And he will give you the comfort and rest of the eternal victory. Amen.